So I've titled this a summary of 1 Peter, a primer for the Christian life. And I think anytime you go into an overview of a book, it's always a great idea to look at the man who wrote it. So who is Peter? What, what, what do we know about Peter? Anybody? He's got a, a foot-shaped mouth. Somebody else said something? He's a fisherman, okay. He's singled out. He's singled out. What do you mean by singled out? Well, he is uh, the foundation of the Catholic Church as the rock. Well, yeah, he, he, he's supposedly under the Catholic Church labeled as the, the Pope. Uh, we, we know that that's not really the case, but yes, he is singled out. He was the, what we would say, the first apostle, first disciple. He was the leader. Um, as far as his name, he's got four distinctive names throughout Scripture. Uh, he's got Peter, he's got Simon, he's got Simeon, both of them being paired with Peter, and then he has the name Cephas. Uh, I looked this up, and in the ESV, he's got Peter listed 156 times in the New Testament. Uh, Simon is listed 50 times, and it's paired with Peter. Simeon is listed twice, also paired with Peter, and then Cephas is mentioned nine times. Uh, oddly enough, he's most prevalent in the book of Acts. He is mentioned 61 times there. Next, in the Gospel of Matthew, 23 times, Mark, 19, Luke, 20, and John, 34. John refers to him most as Simon Peter with a pairing of Simon, 22 out of the 32 occurrences. As a person, we said that he was a fisherman. Um, he had a brother. Uh, his brother's name was Andrew. That's right, Andrew. Um, he was in um, a fishing business with his brother, with also who else? James and John. Um, last or surname Zebedee, son of Zebedee. Um, he was married. We know that he was married. Um, his father's name was Jonah. He was a disciple, he was apostle, and we brought up the idea that he is called the first pope by the Catholic Church. Um, where was he from? He settled in Capernaum, but he was originally from Bethsaida. Uh, his personality, what do we know about his personality? Uh, Tim already said one, he was uh, you know, foot-shaped mouth. He was fiery. Yes, he was definitely a man of extremes. Um, <clears throat> kind of went through the Gospels, and I looked, um, and I kind of pulled out a few things. And he is a man who the pendulum of the pendulum of his life swings in very wide arcs. He is very brave, and then he's afraid. He's remember the only one that got out of the boat and walked on water, but he sinks when he takes his eyes off Christ. He's the first one to jump to defend Christ with a sword when they come to arrest him. And then, unfortunately, he denies Jesus when questioned by nobodies. He's prideful and he's humble. He's fishing, and then the Lord tells him after they have fished all night long, drop your net on the other side of the boat. Thinking that he knows more than uh, Christ would, he says, we fished all night, we've caught nothing, but he does it, and he's also quick to repentance. <clears throat> Luke 5.8 says, depart from me, I am a sinful man. Something else he does, he rightly associates worship, and then he doesn't. Remember the great confession? 
you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then not long after that, he's up on the mountain of transfiguration. And what does he say? Let's build tabernacles to Moses and Elijah and Christ. So he doesn't understand things at this time. He gets things mixed up. He, he runs ahead of himself. He has false humility, humility and rash overstatements. In John thirteen six through 9, he screams out, You will not wash my feet, and then turns around and says, Wash all of me. Wash all of me. He reaches the pinnacle of the disciples, and then he's dashed to the bottom of the heap with denial. I think it's interesting that the pinnacle of Peter's ministry in the Gospels is the great confession. And then shortly after that, he's reprimanded by Christ, saying that you are speaking for the devil. And after that, if you notice Peter's arc, I think it's interesting that as he goes through the, uh, goes through the Gospels, it's like he's constantly trying to get back to that moment of that great confession when he says, you did not come up with this, but, the, the, but God has given you this information that I am the Son of God. And he keeps falling on his face. That's why he gets to the Mount of Transfiguration. And when he stands there, he's like, hey, let's build tabernacles to everybody. And it's like, no, you don't understand. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so after that, what, what else does he say at the time of um, the Garden of Gethsemane? Everybody's going to leave you. I'm not. The rock's going to be right here. <clears throat> and instead, he denies him and runs off. So there's always this, this trying to get back. And a lot of people would say that with Peter, it's because that was prior to him having the Holy Spirit. I mean, that sounds like a reasonable explanation, doesn't it? But instead, even into the Gospel of Acts, what do we find Peter doing? He stumbles again, doesn't he? Does anybody remember what he does? He caters to the Judaizers by not eating. Like, he prefers that. Um, going back to the things of the law, just keep peace. Right. Paul has to confront him. Paul confronts him. So, Peter... Unlike Paul, I mean, we look at Paul and he's this massive theological mind. And there's not much recorded about Paul after his conversion about stumbling or falling or doing anything. There is the part where he lashes back at the high priest, but he says, I didn't know he was the high priest. Uh, So we know that um, we look at Paul and we think, wow, this guy, nobody can reach Paul's level. But we look at Peter and we're like, wow. Peter's like me. Peter's the tangible, the boots on the ground guy that we can identify with on a daily basis because we are so often just like him. Finally, we find that Peter is ready to give up and then he's tenderly restored. Remember, after the crucifixion of Christ, he tells them to go meet him in Galilee. They go up. Christ hasn't come. Peter's sitting there, still the leader of this band of um, now only 11. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, we're sitting there. What does Peter do? He goes, I'm going fishing. And at that moment, that was not necessarily a moment for Peter to go, hey, I'm just going to go past the time until Jesus gets here. He's like, I'm quitting. This is it. It's over. I'm done. I'm giving up. And yet, then he comes back with Christ, and he's being fed breakfast on the banks. And Christ simply just says, 
Peter, feed my sheep. And he restores him to ministry. I can't tell you how many times I've been in my now eight years within seminary, um, having um, come to the moment to where I'm just like, I just need to give up. This is, this is just too long, it's too hard, and my wife talks me off the ledge. <clears throat> and I sit back, and then the Lord brings opportunities. He brings times of encouragement and refreshing. So what else do we know about uh, Peter? We know about his position. He was a disciple, and he was an apostle. In Matthew 4.18 and Mark 1.16, uh, we find out that he has the initial call into ministry as a disciple. Jesus says, follow me. In Matthew 10.2 and in Mark 3.16, we have uh, what I've entitled an empowering call where he gives them um, the commission to go out and to preach and to cast out demons. And then in Luke 5, verses 3 through 10, we have a little bit more detail about the initial call into ministry. And of course, we have in John uh, chapter 1, verses 41 and 42, the introduction to Jesus by Peter's brother Andrew. As I said, he's riddled throughout the Gospels, predominantly in Acts. And we find that his presence in the Gospel in Acts, he's, it's just dominated by the, uh, Peter. But about halfway through the book of Acts, he disappears. He is mentioned briefly in 1 Corinthians as Cephas. He is rebuked in Galatians, as we've said, by Paul, again, as Cephas. And then finally, he reappears in these two small books in the Bible, First and Second Peter, by his own initiative. Tradition has it that it was Mark's gospel account um, uh, that's recorded from Peter's own personal experience. It's been suggested that Mark, after abandoning the first missionary journey with Paul, is mentored by the rock. So what is the timing and place of this letter? <clears throat> At the time of this letter's writing, we find Paul a completely different person from that, that brash young man that we saw in the Gospels. And even into Acts, we find now a seasoned servant. He is aged and he is a confined man. Based on tradition, <clears throat> he is most likely one of a quarter of the remaining original disciples plus Paul. This depends on which tradition you follow, of course. Uh, some believe that all others were gone by this time, leaving only Paul, Peter, and John, and we know that John outlived all of them. Since it's generally accepted that Peter died under Nero's reign and Nero committed suicide in, eight, uh, in 68 AD, we can approximate the letters writing around 63 to 64 AD. Uh, some have suggested that Peter's notation in chapter 513 is that he is writing from the literal Babylon. Others state that it's a code word for Rome, um, most likely location of the writing, and a few believe he is actually writing from Jerusalem. <clears throat> I don't think necessarily that that's all that important, but just wanted to give that to you. Peter is a far different man from those we found in the Gospels, and yet he is the same. Like I said, he's no longer young and brash, untested and erratic. He is now seasoned, calmer, and pastoral. He is concerned for the flock. So at this point, we know that Peter knows that he's not long for this world. He's soon going to be martyred. We don't know when that's going to happen. He doesn't know when that's going to happen at this point. But he knows that it's probably going to be soon. So we look at these last two letters as Peter's 
swan song, I guess you could say, his final message to the church. Think of a pastor who's been at a church for a very long extended time and he's either about to retire or he's going off to another. Uh, Maybe he knows that he has a limited time and he's handing the reins over to a younger man. And what he wants to deliver to uh, his congregation, what he wants them to remember, how to carry on. Well, think about this. At this time, uh, Peter is writing at the beginning of what's going to become one of the heaviest times of persecution for the early church. And they need to know how they're going to make it through. They're, they're, they're terrified. They're scattered at this point. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, So he has a purpose. I, I think if you look at um, his gospel, he is following the, the instruction of Christ right uh, before he ascended where he tells the disciples to teach everything that you've heard from me and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And if you take Peter's letters and you lay them over the gospels, I think you're going to see what I've determined, and uh, my community group has heard this enough, echoes of the Gospels coming through. You see almost as if you're in one of those little movies where the child comes up, Grandpa, can you tell us about the good old days? And all of a sudden the guy gets the wistful look in his eye and the camera slowly begins to go off focus and you hear the music. It's almost like that to me, where you see Peter recounting these opportunities, these moments throughout the instruction of Christ. And now he's relaying that in one final uh, letter to uh, the scattered church. The purpose of this is to encourage the church. It's to exhort them. And I think it's also to give them hope, which is eschatological. <clears throat> there are familiar verses. Who can tell me some of the familiar verses that come out of this book? You've probably memorized them yourself. Anyone? First or second? Well, let's just do first. We're just doing first. How about this? Uh, Chapter 5, verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What else? I've got got four listed here. 318. Which one? 318. 318. I don't have that one. You want to read that? Okay. That's a good one. The trials in uh, 1 6, and this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. There you go. Some others? Three stuff. You guys are naming some that I didn't get. Okay, good. Very good. How about five seven? Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I pick the low hanging fruit. You guys are getting some deep stuff. 
Chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Anyone else? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I like that one. I like that one. I have one more. Um, Chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. I mean, just in this very small book, we have things that we have, you know, we've memorized, we've learned, we, we constantly refer back to because they give us comfort, they give us hope, they give us direction. Um, in our lives whenever we're dealing with um, issues that uh, we're faced with. I divided the structure um, of the book into four parts. I've got salvation, chapter 1 through uh, chapter 2, verse 12. And then I've got submission, chapter 2, 12 through 3.22. And then sanctification, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And then suffering, chapter 4, verse 12 through five fourteen. So let's look at the first part. One of the first things that we need to do, and you can see when I called this the primer of the Christian life, it's like Peter is going, I need to leave you with information. I need to leave you with a template that can guide you after I'm gone. Because think about this. The apostles had been the complete fountainhead of the early church. They were the ones that were giving the the revelation. They were giving the uh, guidance. They were um, training up men underneath them. But at this point, they're all disappearing. They're going off. And you've got to know that these people were panicked. I mean, right now, one of the biggest things in the world is who's going to uh, be MacArthur's successor? I mean, we don't look at that like we would, you know, the Apostle Peter or something like that. But you get the idea that there is a void and he is trying to fill that void after he's gone. So we look at the first section, the first division, and we've got salvation. What are some of the things within this chapter? Just kind of look down through there and see what you can pull out and let me know what you think Uh, He's talking about in this breakdown of salvation. I'll start you off. In verse 3, he says, you are chosen by God. What are some of the parameters about salvation? And why is it important that we know, first of all, about salvation? That's right. That it, it's a comforting, it's a security thing. But what's important about knowing that you are saved? Why is it important that you know that? People, people today have terrible struggles. I struggled for the first quarter of my life 
with the assurance of my salvation. What happens when you don't know if you're saved or not? You might be. You're in church. But but what happens if you aren't secure in the knowledge of your salvation? You don't know what you've been given. You don't know what you've been given. And how does that play out in your life? You're not victorious. There's no fruit. You, you never move past those initial stages, do you? So you have no idea how you move forward in life. So first of all, he wants you to know, and I like the way you said that, it's that calming assurance, that security, that it's not in anything I do. It's not I'm having... I think one of the things that um, I struggled with early on was because you were supposed to have faith. And the idea is, have faith in what? Well, just believe. Believe in what? I believe in Jesus, but it seemed like there was much more emphasis on my faith. Well, here, Peter dispels that, and he says, you are chosen by God. It's his choice. You have responded. It's his choice. And in this, there are many allusions to the Old Testament nation of Israel being chosen, and they are a separated people, a holy priesthood. One of the biggest struggles, I think, is that we think that once we become saved, when you are an immature believer, is that it's all going to be perfect. It's all going to be fine now. But Peter is trying to encourage this group that's scattered abroad that they are going to endure trials. And so they are chosen, but they are challenged in verse 5 through 9. Let's look at that real quick. 5 through 9 says, Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy and expressible and full of glory. I think what happens is that when we're challenged and when we move through that, um, that challenge brings a clarity to our life, doesn't it? Because your faith is now becoming a proved thing. It's not just some theoretical idea. You've met with challenges in life, and now you've moved past them. You've gone over that hump. And, and there are things in life that you're going to continually be challenged with because God is stretching you. He's going to grow you. He's going to increase your faith. It's not just you get saved, and then you just wait for the big party in heaven. The challenge, like I said, brings clarity. Peter uses illustrations to describe believers. Number one, he describes us as what? Look just a little bit farther down. What does he describe us? So actually, go over to uh, chapter 2. Yeah. Uh, go, go up a little bit. Look in verse 2. What's the first thing that he calls us? Babies. What is it about a baby? Sorry? Sorry? They want to eat. And somebody else said something. They're needy. They're needy. They, they can't do anything for themselves. That's how we're supposed to be. It's not just the immature believers. We don't ever gain. What did Paul say? It's not that I have obtained, but I strive. I'm constantly moving in that direction. That's the way we need to be. We've got to grow. 
So we desire, we, we become so ravenous for the um, sincere milk of the word. Okay, a little bit farther down, what else does he call us? A little bit before that, but he does. Living stones. What does that indicate? We're part of the structure of the church. Part of the structure. Yeah, we're we're building blocks. We're working together. It's not just that you're a one man show. Um, the the work us working together for a common purpose. We're laid against the cornerstone of Christ as a strong and stable unit. And then, Tom, you said a holy priesthood. What does that indicate to us? Okay. What else do we know about the Old Testament priesthood? That's, that's good. They offered sacrifices. Okay. Was it a, was it a Sunday morning thing? It was daily. It never stopped. It never stopped. Um, I remember going to um, Israel, and we were sitting on the southern steps, and the speaker happened to mention that up these steps back in the time of Christ, it was constant traffic of people going up every single day to offer sacrifice. And so when Paul got to the point in Romans, and he says, there is now therefore no condemnation. That's why Christ was the better sacrifice, because all of that traffic stopped. But in our lives, like the holy priesthood, we are to never stop growing, maturing, living in the faith, being disciplined in Christ. And then we're also challenged to maintain our conduct. Uh, You know, Peter tells them, he goes, you will receive opposition, Looking down in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation." One of the themes that Peter does throughout his letter, this particular letter, is that he contrasts the temporal with the eternal. And we need to take our minds off of what we have in this world. It's wonderful to have things. I like things. But we need to set our minds on the things of Christ as we look forward, being able to leave things behind if we don't, if, if they're going to drag us down and keep us concerned about the day and the hour that we find ourselves in. Um, Let's move quickly. Um, We come into the second break of the book, uh, Submission, chapter 2, verse 13 through 411. I think this is probably the crux of the entire Christian life um, because uh, Peter lists it out and it covers the entire scope of how we live on a day-to-day basis. Uh, You've got the governmental submission in chapter 2, verse 13 and 17. And um, you've got chapter, uh, you've got corporate in uh, 18 uh, through 20. So I don't want to open up a can of worms, but uh, when we get into the governmental aspect, Peter is sitting here and he's saying, 
uh, be subject for the sake of the Lord to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. You know, one of those allusions back to the Gospels, I simply think that Peter, while he's writing this letter, is thinking back when the Pharisees came up to him and said, are we to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, you know, uh, who's is on the coin. And he says, it's Caesar's. He says, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. And then in another point, and he tells Peter to go fishing. Peter goes and fishes and he pulls a coin out and he pays taxes with that. So we are to obey. And Peter knows that in order to live a life quiet and to try to minister, to continue to minister and to teach about the gospel of Christ, we need to be obedient to government authorities. Um, in situations, like I said, I don't want to really get into it because this is an overview, but in situations where we've had um, over the past few years uh, government coming in and saying people can't worship, you can't uh, uh, serve, there are times that um, we are to continue in obedience to Christ but understand that there are consequences to that obedience and we are to obey Christ rather than men. Peter, at this moment, um, he breaks after he talks about the corporate um, submission, uh, masters obeying your uh, uh, slaves obeying your masters. Peter breaks in the middle of the call to submission by reminding us that we are to imitate Christ, who is the ultimate servant, who also suffered for things he didn't do and never opened his mouth to defend himself. He trusted the righteous judge. Um, I think it's important because you can imagine that they're thinking, you know, the government's coming in, they're taking our homes, they're taking our livelihood, they're taking our lives, and yet uh, you're telling us to obey. And this is, well, remember what Christ did for you. Remember, he suffered on your behalf and he was submissioned all for the greater purpose and plan of God. Previously, believers had no recourse but to fight back. And you can understand why these guys are doing this. Remember, have you ever watched some of these uh, older movies or read in history books and wondered how the humanity even made it out of the, the, and the times of antiquity? I mean, the wars alone were just absolutely brutal. And it was a dog-eat-dog, man surviving, simply trying to stay alive. <laughs> And yet he comes here at this point and he says, um, you previously had no recourse but to fight back, to question, to complain. And you were on your own fighting tooth and nail for your very survival. But Peter reminds them that they now have a shepherd and an overseer of their soul. In verse 25, he says, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I think it's interesting that Peter continually carries on that, um, uh, that uh, word picture of a shepherd as a pastor, of someone who's caring for them, because that, that encompasses so many different things in the life of a believer. A shepherd does what? What, what does a shepherd do for his sheep? He cares for them. Well, let's be a little bit more specific. He keeps them together. What else? Say again. Guides them. He protects them. He goes after them. And what does he do sometimes? Yeah. 
And then in the discipline, often what we find out that that happens with the sheep is that he'll break their legs and then he carries them until the leg is healed. And so we have that discipline. Sometimes it seems harsh. And sometimes the trials that we go through in life seem incredibly harsh and overbearing. But he has promised to be our shepherd, our overseer of our souls. Um, Peter then steps back into the submission and it comes to um, submission, I put it as familial. Um, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, this is probably the hardest area of submission because why? Why is the wives submitting to your husbands, husbands loving your wives? Why is this, children obeying your parents, why is this the hardest part? It's easy for us to submit to the government. It's easy for us to submit to our bosses. Why? They have recourse. You could lose your job. You could lose your freedom or your life. But with family, it's a little bit different. Why is it also, why would it be a little bit harder with family? You're never apart for the most, yeah. Um, what else? Nobody knows you better. Yeah, yeah, that, that's it. I mean, who, who knows you better than your wife or your husband? Who sees the faults and then you're, you're trying to step up and you're trying to lead and then they go, you don't do it, buddy. <laughs> or you don't do this, you don't do that in the house. I can't get you to spend time with the kids. Why are you off on your own? You know, it, it's different things like that. But um, all of these areas of submission are for a purpose. So what is the purpose for submission? Look at chapter 2, verse 15. What do you read there? Okay. Something. Yeah, yeah. Um, I recently had a situation at work similar to that where I had uh, a coworker. I review things at work. I review projects, and um, in the review of a project, I. I've, fill out a sheet and I send it back and I'm like, these are the things that you need to correct. I wasn't receiving these uh, projects back and clients are waiting on them. And so finally I reached out and the response was, is the client relations person asking for it? And I went, no, I'm asking you for it. And they said, well, to be honest, I really don't like working with you. And so I just really didn't want to clear the points. And 
I've never been faced with that before. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so I sent the response to my boss. And after the talk, it said that he took issue with the things that I was saying because he felt that I was like gunning for him, that I was purposely saying, you've got to do this because you're stupid or something. And I never wrote that the guy was stupid. That was not, that was not what it was taking place. But my boss simply came back and, and is kind of like validating that we aren't living. We're, we're, what does it say? We are silencing the ignorance of foolish men. And my boss simply said, look, this is your job. He's just told you what you need to correct. Correct it and get the project out the door. And so um, I'd love to say that that career, uh, cleared everything up. It didn't. And it's not in life either. You're always going to have to silence the ignorance of foolish men. But your submission goes a long way in uh, silencing that. All right, in 220, what else does it do? Our submission does what else? Finds favor with God. And because we're running out of time, I'm, I'm just going to move through some of these other ones. In three, chapter 3, verse 1, our submission will be evangelistic. It will help us win others to Christ. And in 3, 7, it will keep your prayers from being hindered. Have you ever thought about that, that your disobedience might hinder your prayers being answered? I mean, it shouldn't come as a surprise and then afterwards, there's also a reward. Your, sub, your submission will cause you to inherit a blessing. Uh, now, your submission doesn't clear up every single aspect of, not, of circumventing any type of trial in your life. There is adversity in spite of submission. And Peter says in verse 15 of chapter 3, be ready. And be ready to give an account for the hope that you have and do so with gentleness and fear. God may have willed your suffering for a purpose just like that of Christ and it is to bring someone to faith or to bring Him glory. Don't worry about those that harass you. They will be judged like those in the captivity from Noah's day. God is in control. I think that's one of the things that we need to remind ourselves daily, that no matter what trial you face, no matter what opposition that you come up against, God is in control. One of the best sermons I ever heard uh, at a shepherd's conference was by Phil Johnson on Providence. And uh, you can find it on the Grace to You website. I urge you to go and listen to it. The final part is sanctification. Um, oh, I'm sorry. No, it's the, the next section. We've got two more. Uh, sanctification. Uh, this comes as a result of our submission like Christ. The believer's relationship to sin has now come to an end. Christ suffered for sins placed on his flesh while the believer's relationship is according to the flesh. It's desire and lust. And those things have now come to an end. We are to arm ourselves with the same purpose that Christ had. As Christ suffered in the flesh so that he might bring us to salvation and glorify his Father, we too need to suffer with the same purpose, which is to bring him glory and to endure the sufferings according to the flesh so that others might come to know him. Endurance. That's probably one of the things that uh, cancels out uh, most uh, professing believers um, in church today. Nobody has the staying power. Nobody has the ability to endure. But Peter tells the church, look, the time is short. 
you don't have to endure that long. Uh, the end of all things is at hand. And we're to have sound thinking. We're to keep a sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And we're to exercise fruit of the Spirit in our endurance. Luther referenced what, um, when he says love fervently, he referenced this as burning love for one another. Uh, we are to have hospitality without complaining. And we're to be a good steward in the exercising of your gift for the glory of Christ. And finally, we come to the last part, the suffering. This is the eschatological part. The particulars of suffering, we need to understand that this is not something strange. This is not something unusual that the Christian is going through. It is something that we share in, uh, with Christ, and it is to be without shame. If we are suffering, if we are um, enduring some type of a trial, let it not be because of some sin that we've committed. We need to make sure that whatever we suffer, it's like that of Christ in innocence. Um, our suffering, uh, he goes on to talk about uh, that judgment is to begin with the house of God. And um, one of the commentaries that I read said that they've translated this incorrectly most of the time, just talking about judgment, and it says the judgment. Um, it appears to reference Ezekiel 9, 6, and also Jeremiah twenty five twenty nine as a reference to Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem. One of the commentators mentioned that this was an allusion back to the people of Israel stating that, you know, in writing to these Christian believers, it's a good thing that you are in Christ because this is what is coming. Um, could mean that the judgment is first going to start with the Christians, with the former being a reference, like I said, to the destruction of the temple. In other words, woe to those Jews who do not obey the gospel of God. What are the parameters of our suffering? Well, it's according to God's will. Um, why is that important? Why is it important that we know that our suffering that we're going through is within the parameters of God's will? Nothing happens outside. He's trustworthy and he is the faithful creator, as Peter writes. He is not going to give you more that you can endure um, because he will be there to help you shoulder the weight. We are promised suffering. It will be under God's hand and we will be exalted. And then the trial has limitations. God will restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. And I think one of the things that Peter kind of tips his hand at the beginning, go quickly back to chapter 1. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by sanctifying the work of the Spirit, to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood, may grace, peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the Father and God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the, uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Um, Peter is talking to people 
who are about to go under the most uh, dire form of persecution, trials that they have ever known. And he's telling them, look, don't worry about now. Look toward the future. Christ is coming back. It's going to be short. And he will welcome you into his arms and give you, in chapter 5, as he says, a crown of glory. Oh, that's First Peter. We were a little rushed for that. Sorry about that. Didn't give much time for instruction, but hopefully you've got something from that today. Let me pray.